the Seattle Opera Podcast. Hi, opera-loving podcast listeners. It's Jonathan Dean, Seattle Opera Dramaturg and, once upon a time, wannabe Seattle bohemian. I'm here today with a podcast introducing the music of La Boheme. Please subscribe to our Seattle Opera podcast and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you like to listen. It seems almost unnecessary to introduce this work. La Boheme has been one of the world's most beloved operas since 1896. Its music is both familiar and extremely easy on the ear. And the opera is virtually indestructible. The only time I've ever seen Boheme not work was before an audience consisting entirely of middle school students who really didn't appreciate all its lovey-dovey romantic stuff. They'll figure it out someday. La Boheme is about young people. Well, not that young. They're not tweens. They might be college age or maybe in their 20s. The point is, it's about characters who are not yet responsible for the three M's. Matrimony, mortgage, and munchkins. It's not about us, older people limited by the cares and burdens of ordinary adult life. But it's for us. La Boheme is an impossibly brilliant exercise in nostalgia. For older people, it's a reminder of how alive we used to feel and a reminder of why that life was unsustainable. There isn't really a plot to La Boheme. It's basically an episode of Friends, or maybe it's real-world Seattle. The cast list includes four roommates, two of whom have girlfriends. Rodolfo and Mimi are the inseparable codependent pair. Marcello and Musetta are the ones who express their affection by fighting all the time. We never learn about the love lives of the other two roommates, Chonal and Coline. The plot? Well, in Act 1, they all go out to dinner. And later on, there's a breakup and health problems and a very sad death scene. No plot, just a bunch of stuff that happens. La Boheme is not a tragedy, technically. I always feel like a heartless monster when I say that, because it is really sad, and most of us are in tears by the time you get to the end. But technically, tragedy is a theatrical form where something awful happens, and it's your own fault. What happens in La Boheme isn't anybody's fault, it's just life. Life is happy and sad in equal parts, and what's so brilliant about La Boheme is how it presents both in perfect balance. The audience noticed that right away. Here's a famous old opera commentator, Gustav Kobe, whose big book of opera introductions was first published in 1919. Kobe was sort of the great-great-great-grandfather of all opera podcasters. La Boheme, Kobe writes, takes place in the students' quarter of Paris, where gaiety and pathos rub elbows. It laughs as well as weeps. The score now sparkles with merriment, now is eloquent of love, now is filled with despair. La Boheme comes very neatly in two parts, each not quite an hour. The first part is happy, the second part sad. Act one is mostly about love and friendship and humor and joyous celebration. It's Christmas Eve, and here's why Puccini's music works so brilliantly. The music is an idea of Christmas Eve, not the real thing. We first hear the Christmas Eve tune as Chonal is telling his friends about all the delights that await them if they go out and celebrate the holiday in style, even though they're all broke. One moment of 
that same tune after the scene change when the curtain goes up and there we are right in the middle of it in all the bustle and excitement of a holiday market. Nostalgia. It's not the thing itself, it's the idea of the thing. In music, the emotional idea of the thing. The music is the feeling we associate with whatever it is we're thinking about. So in the opening scene, what we're hearing is less a musical description of a fire in the Bohemian's little stove, but what it felt like when you're frozen half to death to huddle around a fire with your friends and cheer up and warm up and crack each other up with dumb jokes as you realize that this life may be uncomfortable and ridiculous, but somehow you'll survive. idea, the feeling of a fire. Or, let's listen to one of La Boheme's most beloved melodies, It's Mimi, singing about springtime on a cold winter night. Rodolfo falls in love with her, not because she's cute, not because she lives upstairs and he's extremely desperate and horny. He falls for her because of what she sounds like talking about what springtime means to her. Then the thaw comes, she says. And I live so high up in that attic garret, it's like the sun greets me first before anybody else, and the first kiss of April is just for me. springtime, but the idea of springtime, the feeling of springtime, and yes, 
anybody who can feel feelings like that is a person you want in your life. One more example, where La Boheme gives us not the thing itself, but the idea or the feeling of the thing, what it means to us. And that's Colline's coat. The coat aria for the bass comes towards the end of the opera when most people start crying. Colline is heading off to the pawn shop to sell his threadbare, ugly, ridiculous old coat in the hopes of getting a little money to buy some medicine for Mimi, who's dying. He knows perfectly well the coat is hopeless, but still, it's really hard to part from it. Not only does this coat represent the bohemian lifestyle he has outgrown, the coat represents himself, his life, and he's not yet ready to leave it. But parting is as inevitable as the remorseless trudge of this march, as Colline heads uphill toward Montmartre to the pawn shop. Those happy days are gone. I bid you farewell, old friend. You don't have to have been a starving student on the left bank of Paris in the early 19th century to know what that's about. But I suppose I should say a word or two about the origins, the history of this opera story, and this very complicated term, bohemian life. Bohemia is an old name for what's now the Czech Republic. In French, Bohemien used to refer to the Roma people, a migratory community who traditionally didn't own land. In English, we used to call the Roma gypsies, although that term, too, is fading from usage. Good riddance, I say, it's misleading. The Roma aren't from Egypt any more than they're from the Czech Republic. La Bohème isn't about the Roma, but it is about people who don't own land, who don't follow the rules. Bohemian life in 1830s Paris was an alternative to that matrimony mortgage munchkin value system I mentioned earlier. What is it, really? The first ever modern, secular, educated urban lifestyle without money. That's why almost everybody in our culture today identifies with the characters of La Boheme, no problem. The rules governing how we live in cities today in the West pretty much started in Paris after the fall of Napoleon. That's when French author Henri Murger scribbled out his story collection, Scenes from Bohemian Life, Sans de la Vie de Bohème. It's not a novel. There really is no plot. There's not even much imagination because the story's all derived from things that really happened to Murger and people he knew. 
Fifty years later, Giacomo Puccini stole the idea of making Ruggiero's stories into an opera from his friend and competitor, Ruggiero Leoncavallo, who had helped launch the Verismo movement in Italian opera with his masterpiece, Pagliacci. Verismo means no kings and queens, no gods, no lovesick shepherds chasing nymphs, or medieval maidens sucking poison out of their rings. Let's write operas about real life, about the basic experiences of common people. La Boheme is really Puccini's only Verismo opera, with the possible exception of Il Tabarro. Sometimes people describe Puccini's other operas, including Tosca and Madame Butterfly, as Verismo or realistic because the drama feels so real. In those operas, the singers never break character, never gratefully acknowledge the audience's applause, there's no magic, the locations are detailed and specific, and the chorus behaves more like real human beings than most opera choruses. But those elements make Puccini's operas cinematic, not verismo. It's a subtle difference, but it's important. Cinema holds a camera up to reality and photographs it. At least, that's what it did in the 20th century before CG. In that sense, cinema is close to reality. Opera never resembled reality. From day one, opera has always been extremely stylized. What's fascinating is Puccini started writing operas in this much more cinematic style just around the time when Thomas Edison and others developed the motion picture camera technology that made film possible. That's why Puccini's operas are so much like movies. That's why, as the movies replaced opera as the dominant communal art form in Western culture, Puccini's works maintained their status as the most popular operas of all time. Thomas Edison understood why. In a letter to Giacomo Puccini, the American inventor wrote, Men die and governments change, but the songs of La Boheme will live forever. Thanks for listening to our Labo M101 podcast. The Seattle Opera Podcast is a co-production of Seattle Opera and King FM. Find more episodes at your favorite podcast provider or at seattleopera.org or king.org. Musical examples from Seattle Opera's 2013 and 2007 archival recordings of Labo M, starring Andrew Garland as Chonard, Arthur Woodley as Colline, Michael Fabiano and Rosario Laspina as Rodolfo, Keith Ferris as Marcello, and Jennifer Black and Nuccio Focile as Mimi. Carlo Montanaro conducted the Chorus and Orchestra of Seattle Opera in 2013. Vekoslav Sute did so in 2007.